Would you remain standing and pray with me? Father, we thank you for the joy of the resurrection, the living hope that we have in Jesus. God, would you help us to, um, in our doubts, just like Thomas, would you help us in all of the trials and uh, when we are huddled in a room by ourselves, fearful, God, would you help us to remember that you are the God who broke into human history, you broke into the room, and you spoke words of peace and life to us, God. Help us to believe this morning. And God, would you, would you bless the reading of your word this morning that we would res- respond with faith? And God, would you be in this moment, in this sermon? Um, and Lord, let it all be according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Amen. You may be seated. The sermon text this morning is 1 Peter. If you don't have your Bible, uh, I think it's number, page one, 1014 in the Pew Bible. Uh, so if you want to follow along, I'm going to be jumping around quite a bit in 1 Peter. And so uh, 1 Peter is our text this morning, specifically verses 3 through 9 of chapter 1. But we're going to kind of look at the whole thing this morning. Praise God. Praise God that we can truly live in the joy of the resurrection. But as our scripture this morning says, in this we rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Named after his grandfather, Sigamus, or here, let's see here. Let's see if I can get this right. Sigismund, there we go. Sigismund Shlomo was born in 1856. He lived most of his more than 83 years of life in Vienna, Austria. And while at the University of Vienna, he changed his name. Obviously, he changed his name. Can't say it. He changed his name to Sigmund. Sigmund. Uh, the father of modern psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud, once wrote... Life is hard to bear. Freud suffered many things in his life. Lost and broken relationships at a young age. The death of his children. Cancer in the roof of his mouth that caused pain and bleeding while eating for the rest of his life. Freud lived as a minority. A Jew living under the weight of the profoundly racist and anti-Semitic 20th century He suffered countless emotional, relational, physical, and societal pains. And if that weren't enough, uh, he also suffered the burdens of thousands of patients that he treated in his psychiatric practice. As author Nate Wilson writes, life is a story. For some reason, there are people who think that this means they have been born into the sound of music the G-rated musical, as opposed to the actual events, which were a hard R. And they try to gloss over and completely avoid incredible darkness, both internal and external, by means of shiny faces and a chipper soundtrack. Writing to a Christian friend, Freud asked this question, 
How the devil do you reconcile all that we experience and have come to expect in this world with your assumption that there is a moral order? Happy second Sunday of Easter, everybody. I'm glad you're here this morning. I sat here last week on Easter Sunday surprised that Father Ben, on all the Sunday mornings of the Christian year, preached a sermon about suffering. I cried tears of joy in that back pew over there, back row Baptist. Um, Not because Father Ben preached my sermon that I'm about to preach this morning. I had to write a new one. That's not why I was crying. Um, I cried very specifically because the good news that I heard last Sunday, it broke into the difficulty of living, of actually living. As Father Ben proclaimed last week, the resurrection of Jesus answers the question, why do we suffer? Or, or has been called over the history of the church, why there is pain, the problem of pain. And the Apostle Peter, who was crucified upside down, because he wouldn't be crucified the same way as his Lord, he will not allow us to keep our head in the clouds The resurrection is not so heavenly-minded to be of no earthly good. The living hope of the resurrection is, is all about actually living. And living is hard to bear. So this morning, we will meditate again. We will meditate again on God's answer to the problem of pain. And I want to make one very important qualification before we begin The answers that I'm going to give this morning, the answers to human suffering, especially if you are weighed down, does not magically make it better. Doesn't magically make it better. In my very limited 33 years of life, in all of my reading, through every trial, every counseling session, there is no watertight, 100% emotionally satisfying answer to the problem of human suffering, okay? So there's the qualification. Now let's look at the text in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to see two things this morning, partly because I'm saying a lot and partly because my wife really likes it whenever I, when I do this up front. Uh, number one, we're going to see that suffering is universal, and we're going to answer particularly in this section, why do we suffer? Suffering is universal. And then secondly, we're going to see the end of suffering or to answer the question, what is the point? What is the point? So first, suffering is universal. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour It's a pretty grim picture. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. G.K. Chesterton once wrote that the only empirically undeniable Christian doctrine is original sin. And I would add this morning that the empirically undeniable human experience is suffering. I don't, I don't intend to fully argue this point this morning, only to simply observe the reality. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian, agnostic, or Buddhist, rich or poor, young or old. And speaking of the young, uh, this is an established psychological principle. We nostalgically look back on childhood as if children have it easy. 
that children live a carefree, painless, they live in a carefree, painless fun house. Um, and you know what I say to that? Nope. Nope. Uh, there is so much crying in my house. Uh, and I, I am blessed with three healthy and beautiful, emotionally and physically bruised little persons. And I say this all the time, growing up is hard. Uh, only semi-sarcastically, we come into this world crying and it doesn't stop. We're born into a season of waiting, a season of felt distance from God's resolution to our pain. And Peter, who was an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ, he says to us, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. There's a felt distance, or as author Nate Wilson says again, Moses didn't see the promised land. Samson died blind in the rubble. Stephen beneath stones. Paul without a head. You see, even in 2017, United States of America, we, with our bellies full, our well-built houses, medical specialists, weather forecasts, hiking trails, iPhones, recreational activities everywhere. We, we spend money to go to a place to, live, to lift other people's hunks of metal over and over again, to walk and not go anywhere for like an hour, um, or have somebody yell at us, or to soothingly talk to us while we stretch. That's what we do. That's what we do. Uh, and even with all this fun, distracting stuff, Freud is right. He's still right. Life is hard to bear. So the question isn't whether you will suffer. It's how long. How long, O oh Lord? And so look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6. We're going to camp out in verse 6 for a little while. Now for a little while... If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. There are various kinds of suffering, but in general, suffering comes in two categories or two different ways. Suffering can be verbal. It can be verbal. First uh, Peter 2.23, you can be reviled. In 3.16, slandered. In 4.14, you're insulted. Suffering can be verbal, but suffering can also be physical. Chapter 2, 24, you suffer in your body. In 4, verse 1, we suffer in our flesh. As Dr. Armand Nicolai, who's a clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, writes, Clinically, emotional pain is often considerably more intolerable, intolerable than physical pain. Although we may experience long respites from physical pain, we receive little relief from emotional pain. We hover somewhere on a spectrum between a painful state of anxiety and an even more painful state of despondency and despair. Though we experience periods of freedom from these uncomfortable states of mind, they are too brief. Furthermore, furthermore, the more aware and more sensitive we are to suffering in the lives of those around us, the more likely we are to live in what Freud refers to as a state of anxious expectation. If you yourself are not burdened now, 
just wait, you're probably bearing someone else's burden. Uh, Parents of small children, every time you get just one little moment to yourself, then the crying starts again. It never stops. You're always bearing someone's burden. Suffering is universal. And one of the great dangers, one of the great dangers when we talk about various kinds of suffering is that we fall into the trap of comparing our suffering with everyone else. Every illustration of suffering in a sermon or on the news is a temptation for ever more existential despair. We have it so easy, right? We have it so easy, don't we? We beat ourselves up because we don't live in a persecuted state. We don't live in Egypt or China or Syria, wherever. Stop complaining, you live in America. We feel bad forever feeling bad. The comparison game is dangerous. And the flip side is also true. Maybe you mistakenly believe that the perfect Christian couple next to you in the pew doesn't ever suffer and there must be something wrong with me. Who sinned that this man was born blind? Maybe you're like Solomon and you think that all, all the people who don't spend their energy on morality or trying to be good people, that fame and fortune and endless vain pursuits means a life without suffering. It's not true. It's not true. As Freud said, I'm, I'm quoting a lot of psychiatrists this morning. Uh, we'll get to uh, more Bible scholars very soon. As Freud said, we are really good at moral dissatisfaction with ourself. Self-torments, hate turned around upon the self. This, this is the fruit of comparing. That's the fruit of comparing. The comparison game is dangerous. John Calvin says that the faithful are not logs of wood, nor have they so divested themselves of human feelings, but they are affected with various trials, difficult to be borne. Suffering is universal. So here's the question um, that our text begins to answer. Why do we suffer? Look with me at verse 6 again. Now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. In one very important sense, it wasn't necessary to suffer. We suffer because of wickedness. This is is the oldest and perhaps the most well-known explanation for the problem of pain, and it's commonly called the free will defense. And here's my my, uh, summary of it. The great mass of humanity is very bad, and as a result, we experience bad stuff. Christians and non-Christians alike, we are very good at earning our suffering. Uh, Chapter 2 and verse 20. For what credit, credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it and you endure? Chapter 4 and verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. In other words, don't earn it. Don't earn it, Christian. Suffering exists in this world because all of us together have sinned and continue to sin. And the result is that we receive the just reward for the way we live. 
So, and some of us suffer uh, because of a sense of false piety. We mistakenly pursue suffering. This is another way that we suffer. Uh, chapter 4 and verse 19, therefore let those who suffer, are you guys getting the idea that First Peter is about suffering? Yeah? Uh, I couldn't avoid it this morning. I had to preach the sermon. Uh, chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We suffer, I think, a lot of the time according to my will, not thy will. As one Bible scholar said, we are told, seek not martyrdom, but seek obedience. Martin Luther said this, we impose a cross upon ourselves for our own fancied good. It is not God's pleasure that we should select our own works, but wait for whatever God ordains. So why do we suffer? We suffer because of sin, whether in outright rebellion to God or our own self-made spirituality. So suffering is universal and we're to blame. So what? My favorite question to ask in a sermon, so what? If God, the question still stands, Freud's question still stands, if God is all-powerful and all-good, as Freud asked, how the devil do you reconcile all that we experience? Okay, so the first point, suffering is universal. Point number two, the end of suffering. The end of suffering. Look with me at the very beginning of First Peter in verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The story of life or the story of the whole world has a telos. It has a goal, an end. The Christian life is a life oriented towards hope. And hope is directed somewhere. It's directed somewhere. Where is it directed? Look with me at verse 4. It's directed to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The only way we can begin to perceive the majesty of heaven or the fullness of our inheritance of Christ is through our broken perspective or through the negations, right? Now we experience loss and death. In the new creation, nothing will be lost and nobody will die. We evangelicals talk a lot about getting saved, right? The past tense, getting saved, Our salvation is ultimately still to come. Martin Luther again. Peter says nothing of temporal peace. The consolation of Christians does not consist in visible present things, which, however costly and glorious they may be, are nevertheless perishable and uncertain. Praise God this morning for the costly and glorious gifts of this life. Praise God for this church. If you're not doing that in your prayers, you need to be doing that. Praise God for this church. This is a great church. Praise God for a marriage filled with love. I don't give thanks enough. 
Praise God for healthy children, for food on the table, for breath in your lungs, for every heartbeat. Praise God. But these are all perishable. What if I told you you could have everything you ever wanted? Perfect health, a perfect marriage, a bunch of kids, and all the financial and material blessing you could ever want. Job was given all of that and more. But only after he suffered in agony, his entire family died, and everything he owned was destroyed. He was given more than he could ever want, but that didn't bring back his wife and his children. They were still dead. That's not a consolation that lasts. Lazarus died again. His family grieved again. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. C.S. Lewis says, Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. Continuing in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1. In this you rejoice. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Rejoice. We rejoice in the past resurrection, the historical victory of Jesus, the real physical empty tomb, but the living hope of the resurrection is a future-oriented rejoicing. We will rejoice with inexpressible and exalted joy. Our rejoicing ultimately belongs to the consummation, not to the present. Chapter 5, 6, and 7 says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The humble will be exalted at the proper time. The Christian hope is directed towards the future and final restoration of all things. The telos of hope, the end of hope, is future and final salvation. Or as people will cynically say, pie in the sky in the sweet by and by. Again, my favorite question, so what? So what? What is the point? And it's actually more personal than that. The question's more personal than that, whether you acknowledge it or not. What is his point? Why would our daddy allow us to suffer? 1 Peter chapter 1, and verse 3. Bless God the Father according to his great mercy because of the imperishable, undefiled, precious blood of Christ. If there was no fall of man, if there was no suffering, if we did not experience pain, then God could not show himself to be merciful. He couldn't reveal himself to be the gracious, self-giving God. Without struggle, there wouldn't be cool stuff like superheroes. 
There wouldn't be knights in shining armor. There wouldn't be the thrill of victory. The very fact that we have stories, that there's conflict, that there's rising tension, and then that there's resolution is proof of this. Because sin and suffering entered into our world, this is the story of the world. Because it entered into our world, we are able to experience mercy, to know the fullness of the love of God in the cross of Jesus Christ. We are able to know God, the hero of the story. One of my favorite singer-songwriters, Andrew Peterson, says it best. And this is a long quote, so I want you to take it in. It's, it's really good stuff. I used to be a little boy, as golden as a sunrise, breaking over Illinois when the corn was tall. But every little boy grows up, and he's haunted by the heart that died, longing for the world that was before the fall. But then forgiveness comes. A grace that I cannot resist. And I just want to thank someone. I just want to thank someone for this. Now I can see the world is charged. It's glimmering with promises. Written in a script of stars. Dripping from the prophet's lips. But still my thirst is never slaked. I am hounded by a restlessness, eaten by this endless ache, but still I will give thanks for this, because I can see it in the seas of wheat, I can feel it when the horses run, it's howling in the snowy peaks, it's blazing in the midnight sun, just behind a veil of wind, a million angels waiting in the wings, a swirling storm of cherubim making ready for the reckoning. Oh, how long, how long? Oh, sing on, sing on. And here, here's what First Peter is arguing. And when the world is new again, and the children of the king are ancient in their youth again, maybe it's a better thing. It's a better thing to be more than merely innocent but to be broken and then redeemed by love. Maybe this old world is bent, but it's waking up, and I'm waking up. Verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it perishes in the fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In Christ, we are invited into the fellowship of the Holy Trinity. Everything that is his is ours because of the blood of Jesus Or as Leinhard Gopelt says, God gives to those who are kept in faith what belongs to himself. Praise is given to you. Praise as recognition of your belonging to him. Glory as your participation in his being, in his suffering. And honor 
as acceptance by him so that you will not be put to shame. We cannot avoid suffering, but we can trust God. The God who died and rose again. And maybe it's a better thing. Maybe it's a better thing to be more than merely innocent and to be broken and redeemed by love. I'm going to read one more quote. I'm going long, I know. Um, And I'm going to read this mainly because I just read an author that I quoted many times in this sermon. Um, he He has a tumor in his brain, and he's going to be operated on in a week and a half. And he wrote a book, which is perhaps the best book that I've ever read on this, suffering, or life in general. And it's called Death by Living, Death by Living by Nate Wilson. And I just want to finish with this with this quote from, the, from this book. Nate Wilson says this, Shall we die for ourselves or die for others? For most of us, the question is rarely posed in our final mortal moment, although there is glory when it is. Death is the finish line of this preliminary race. Shall we cross the finish line for ourselves or for others? The choice isn't waiting for us down the track. The choice is now. Death is now, the choice is here. Lay your life down. Your heartbeats cannot be hoarded. Your reservoir of breaths is draining away. You have hands, blister them while you can. You have bones, make them strain. They can carry nothing in the grave. You have lungs, let them spill with laughter. With an average life expectancy of 78.2 years in the U.S., subtracting eight hours of sleep, a day, I have around 250,000 conscious hours remaining to me in which I could be smiling or scowling, rejoicing in my life, in this race, in this story, or moaning and complaining about my troubles. I can be about my, my brain tumor. He's living this right now. I can be giving my fingers, my back, my mind, my words, my breaths to my wife and my children and my neighbors, or I can grasp after the vapor and the vanity for myself, dragging my feet, afraid to die, and therefore afraid to live. And like Adam, I will still die in the end. Living is the same thing as dying. Living well is the same thing as dying for others. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we rejoice in the living hope of the resurrection this morning. And that's hard. That's hard to do in the midst of all the trials that we go through in our day in and day out lives, God. But would you help us? Would you give us faith Would you continue to shower your mercy upon us each day? Continue to show us your grace, God, so that we can know you more, that we can live with joy even right now, and God, that ultimately we can live our lives dying for others around us, just as you did, God. We thank you for this living hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.